Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. It's the ninth book in the Bible, starting with Genesis and going forward there, right after Judges, Joshua, and right before First and Second Kings. First uh, Samuel, we're working through a series in this book. And as you turn there, we see now that in this book about kings and about this guy named Samuel, which you would kind of expect in a book called Samuel, uh, we, we see Samuel now returning to center stage after he's briefly yielded the spotlight to a, a somewhat unlikely character that we saw the last few weeks. The, the sort of center figure for the last couple of chapters has been this, this uh, box, this container that's called the Ark of the Covenant that we're perhaps familiar with through Raiders of the Lost Ark fame, if not through our reading of of Scripture. And this uh, box we saw in chapter 4, the Old Testament people of God, as they were preparing to fight these folks, the Philistines, they got defeated, and then they thought, hey, let's get some power from God. And they didn't really pause and and pray so much, and they kind of went forward just with their plan and hoped that God would be on their side by having this box, almost treated it as sort of a lucky rabbit's foot, and found out that uh, God's not really excited about that. The Philistines defeated them, took the ark back on to their own uh, home territory. The ark kind of dealt them a, a serious blow as well, so they were happy to get rid of it. And then we saw last week that this uh, box, this ark representing God's presence, comes back to Israel, back to the people of God. And uh, and, and nevertheless, they, they are dealt a, a bit of a blow again as they treat the box without the sort of respect and recognition of God's holiness associated with it so they were reminded of God's nature and you sort of wonder are they ever going to learn the lesson are they ever going to get it and have it get through their thick skulls they're a little bit like you and like me in that regard and so as we turn to our verses this week which I'll mention is one of the shorter passages as we've read some longer ones in our weeks together We'll see the people of God, in a sense, kindly put finally putting this together. And as we saw last week, talking about this idea of the gospel waltz, the Christian life, the journey to God as a sort of dance, a three step dance. We're going to see the people of God repenting, believing and seeking, repenting, believing and fighting, we might say, for their relationship with the Lord. And so I invite you to read along with me. And we'll see how they not only are dancing that waltz, but they're even putting on their dancing shoes of prayer in these verses. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, and I'll read to the end of the chapter as you read along with me uh, silently. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered Mizpah and drew water, poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel, reminded judging is just leading. It's less of a courtroom idea and more of a leading idea. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Remember last time they were defeated significantly by the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. They were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. And he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, did not enter again into the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. He judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. He built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again this week for your word, that your word is truth. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. Lord, allow us to bring whatever's on our minds, on our hearts, whatever burdens, whatever distractions we have right to the feet of the cross now, that we might listen to you. And Lord, that we might be encouraged and also challenged. So, Lord, that we could experience uh, your good and draw close to you, even in your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I realize this is probably a little bit of a guy's perspective. But I don't know how many of you can remember that day. And maybe they don't even do it anymore. But I remember it in my fourth and fifth grade year. When you walked into gym class, you walked into P.E., and there were no basketballs out. There were no footballs. There was no kickball because it was square dancing month. Eight people awkwardly gathered around that square, two on each side for the do-si-do and the other maneuvers. And it was not very enjoyable for me. It was awkward, right? As my boys like to say, awkward. I mean, it was the epitome of that. Maybe maybe you didn't have that in your school upbringing. Maybe some of you loved it. No offense intended. Uh, Maybe you remember, though, the junior high dance, if you don't remember the square dance in fourth or fifth grade. The junior high dance gathered in a room perhaps similar to this one we're sitting in or the one straight across the way there. 
standing, girls all on one side with their nice dresses on, boys trying to keep their shirts tucked in and look somewhat presentable, uh, joking around with one another because they were really quite uncomfortable with the idea of having to walk all the way, those 25 feet across that gym floor to invite a little lady to dance for a few moments. Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, difficult, challenging to figure out adolescent dancing and to move to maturity, if you will. Well, as we want to continue to look today at this idea of what we call the gospel waltz that a fellow pastor of mine in town has has laid out wonderfully and is a great paradigm for us to think about the Christian life. We're reminded that it's awkward to learn those first Steps, right? And to figure out how to move and how to navigate and how to actually dance that gospel waltz. We saw last week, just to remind you, that uh, there's really three steps. The reason we talk about it being a gospel waltz wisely is because the Christian life isn't just one step dance of repentance. That's an important first one, you might say. For some of us, though, maybe that was the sum total of our spiritual life or how we've kind of perceived Christianity is it's just, you know, stop doing that bad stuff. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. All right. Stop the bad stuff and and quit doing that and, and maybe try to turn towards God. The Christian life has got to be more than that. And so hopefully we've discovered along the way that there's this at least second step to this dance. It's at least a two step dance we've maybe been learning. And that is this idea of believing. So we repent. Yes, we recognize the way we're going is wrong, that we ought to turn to God. But then we also believe and we believe this powerful message that the scriptures reveal on on every page that God loves us because of his free mercy and grace, not because of anything we could do or anything we have done. He loves us and cares for us. And we believe that. And really, you can't really repent when you think about it without believing that fully. Our repentance will only be on the surface if we don't really believe that God's grace and mercy is there, that he cherishes us and loves us. And then conversely, when we start to see and believe how much he deeply loves us through Christ, then we're going to go deeper. We're going to say, I actually want to change in deeper places in my life. And that repentance word is kind of a bad word for us, even in our Christian circles, turns into a beautiful thing. So repent, believe. But then we mentioned last week as well, rightly, that the Christian life, this journey to God has to have this third step to really be the the biblical framework for this dance. And that is to pursue or to seek or to fight, to go after God, not just to turn away, not just to believe and know his love, but to really pursue him. We saw that last week as we looked at chapter six, this idea of the gospel walls. But we may have been left with a, a question. Hopefully we helped a little bit last week on this gospel walls. We may have been left with a question. How do we actually do that? What are some of the nuts and bolts of this dance? Repent, believe and seek. Repent, believe and fight. And if you're asking that question or were asking that question last week, fantastic. Because this week's verses give us some marvelous answers to that question, how we dance this waltz. As we look at it, we'll see the dynamics of the gospel waltz. We'll see that we need to have power for the waltz. We've got to have ability to do it. We'll call this putting on our uh, praying shoes. And then lastly, that there's a beautiful thing we can do of remembering 
how we danced the dance in the past, how we can make a scrapbook, if you will, for that dance and the pictures and where God has brought us. We'll see this in the life of, of Samuel and his actions and the people's actions in First Samuel chapter seven. So turn there with me again. First Samuel seven, looking at just verses three and four to start out with. There's a lot packed in here of the dynamics of what we call the gospel waltz. The first thing we see is the people are returning to the Lord. OK, they're trying to get recentered, we might say, focused on the Lord and they're returning to the Lord. How? He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. Hey, that's the first thing that we see about this idea of the gospel waltz is that uh, the, as, as first Samuel lays it out, these kings that we see, Saul and then uh, David and then Solomon, it's even going to describe them throughout first and second Samuel as people who either have a whole heart towards God or are half hearted towards God. We even use that verbiage in our own language or, or don't have any heart towards the Lord. And the scriptures are reminding us here. I, I don't think God's ignorant of the fact that. None of us ever really seek the Lord with the entirety of our heart. But the idea is here is that we ought to seek to do that. That ought to be our aim to have my whole heart. I shouldn't set out to turn and walk with God and have in my mind. I'm going to keep these areas off to myself. Right. I'll keep this part of my life to myself. I'm just going to I'm going to give him this part of my heart, this segment. And I'm really going to you know, pursue him with that part. But I'm going to kind of keep this area off in a corner. God says, no, with our whole heart, we ought to bring all that we are. Goes on there, as you look on in verse three, uh, that we are to put away the foreign gods, it says. So there's not only saying I want to go towards God with my whole heart, but I want to put something off. The Bible always talks about it that way of putting something on and putting things off to walk with the Lord. In fact, sometimes it's helpful for us to think about that. Maybe there's an area of struggle of ongoing sin that you wrestle with. Uh, anger or uh, the demand for control or worry or other issues. And you say, "Okay, I just want to get rid of that. I want to stop worrying. I want to stop having anger. I want to stop being obsessive about controlling everything. Uh, And and that's not bad to start at that point. But the scriptures remind us we ought to put something on in place of it. We ought to be putting that off and putting something on. And, And so we ought to put in, you know, love. We ought to put in trust where we're control freaks and we ought to put in a reliance upon God where there's worry and peace that he gives us where there's worry. So we have this picture of putting away the false gods, putting their heart towards God. And then it says here that they're to direct their heart to the Lord. You know, when I uh, was playing for a brief time in my high school years uh, in a not very glorious fashion, but at least I was out there on the field playing defensive back on the high school football team. I, I didn't you can already you know tell if you watch me move around a little bit, I didn't have a whole lot of quickness, but I had enough to be out there. And so I had to kind of compensate for the lack of of, of natural quickness. And so I would learn that if I watched the, the feet of the person, the receiver running out for the pass, if I studied where his feet were, I could figure out just by the steps he took kind of where he was headed. This is true in a lot of sports. And then you can kind of anticipate where a person is going. The feet determined where that person was directed. Uh, so, too, for us spiritually, uh, Samuel's saying we ought to direct our hearts to God. We ought to determine to move in a certain direction 
There are settings in the compass of our life that we should orient ourselves to. It's interesting as we think about all of this idea too, this idea of repentance. So turning towards God with our whole heart, turning away from false things that we would worship and directing ourselves toward God. It's all this idea really of what we call repentance. It's interesting to study uh, looking at Martin Luther, uh, one of the church reformers. And he was this guy that was an Augustinian monk. So he was in the medieval, uh, what we would call the Roman Catholic Church. And, and he w- realized along the way certain things, uh, grace and justification by faith. And he realized the Bible should be the chief authority and all of these important things. Well, the way he kind of decided to announce this or when it hit the scene, I guess, was when he put these 95 statements up on a church door. He actually wrote out 95 statements. That's a lot, right? That's a lot of things to say, to articulate. What's interesting to me always is with all the things that he was trying to reshape and reform in the church, the indulgencies and the confusion about the leadership of the church and some of the corruption. The number one thing, do you know what the first one was of the 95 theses? He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says repent, he means that the whole life of believers on earth should be a constant and perpetual repentance. Luther was just saying, as a church body, we ought to constantly be reforming. He wasn't really trying to start a whole new movement. He was just saying, we ought to constantly be in a state, individually and corporately, of saying, you know, I know I'm broken, I know I'm messed up, so I'm probably going to be going on the wrong track. So regularly, I need to turn back to God and turn away from my lostness and my brokenness. And read on with me now. Uh, I guess we're near the end of verse three there. It says we're to direct our heart to the Lord and serve him only. This is an interesting one. You think about that short little phrase for a minute. Boy, we ah, we chafe at this, don't we? Serve God only. I like myself. I like my individualistic uh, American freedom. I like to go the way I want to go. I can figure this program out. It's interesting that it says to serve God in that way. It reminds us of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. One of those passages I I share a lot because it's been so helpful for me and I need it. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. This idea of serving God only, you know, the, the picture here is really this. And and uh, and in a church of our size, I'm sure we have uh, folks here that are maybe struggling with a, an eating disorder. Or maybe you have a, a uh, condition and anxiety complex of some sort. Uh, maybe you're here and there's issues with uh, sexual addiction. Maybe there's a substance abuse issue in your life. Or, you know, somebody close to you that's wrestled with those things. And and here's the deal. When when folks realize that they have a struggle in that area, what are some of the things that they do? They put themselves under a mechanism and under people to to help them. They say, I cannot direct my life the way it needs to be in this area. I need to get to a group, a help group, or I need to get to a counselor or I need somebody that's going to direct me. Because I know I can't direct myself. That's really the biblical idea of trying to serve God only. But it's not just in sort of one specific area that's maybe real disruptive to our lives like those particular ones I mentioned. But it's it's in everything. In every aspect, we say, boy, I need 
help, not from some human counselor, first and foremost. But I need help from God. I want to follow his lead. I need him to direct me because I can't do it on my own. And then look at this last part of of this verse three. It says, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This gives us a full perspective of the dynamics of this waltz. If we go down this path and it's not always easy to dig in that deep and it's not always easy to say, yeah, I want to recognize you as my Lord God and serve you only. But when we go down that path, God promises he'll deliver us. He'll rescue us. And we know he has fulfilled that in Christ. So the question for us today, as we learn about those dynamics of the gospel waltz is just. Hey, where are we in that dance? Where are we in understanding and having that really be the operating principle for us each day in our lives? That's the purpose of the gospel waltz is for us to apply it each day. Well, if you're like me, you say, fantastic. Thank you for help in breaking down what it looks like to do some of these things. But I got a problem. Even if I know those things, I'm not going to have the strength or ability to do them. I don't have the the dancing shoes on to dance the dance. I need some help. And so the second thing we see in these verses, and it's huge in the scope of first part of the first part of first Samuel, is that we see prayer as the central way that we carry out this dance. Right. The, the, the dancing shoes, if you will, that enable us to dance this dance. Look with me at verse five. It says, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray for you. Jump down to the end of verse eight. The people. So he, he calls them together and then they see specifically as the Philistines are coming. They call out to him in verse eight. They say, please don't stop praying for us. Don't cease to cry out for us, Samuel. And then in verse nine, it tells us that, in fact, That's what Samuel did. He cried out to the Lord for Israel. He cried out for help. You know what's interesting? You know what's been absent in the text of 1 Samuel? You can go back through and look at it if you want to. I mean, I know we've spent now, I guess, a month and a half so far in it. You turn your pages on back. The last time somebody prayed, guess, was Hannah. Back at the very first part of the book. And uh, it's a silence in these pages, but it's a pregnant silence, isn't it? What was missing when they said, hey, get the ark over here. We're going to defeat the Philistines. Get the ark, super weapon. Let's go fight them. Let's blast them. Let's take them down. Nobody paused. Nobody stopped. Nobody said, let's cry out to God. Let's ask him to give us power. Let's ask him to work in our lives. And so we're reminded as we look at these verses of uh, what John Bunyan said, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote this. He said, you can do more than pray. Listen to this. You can do more than pray after you pray. But you cannot do more than pray until you pray. Got that? That's boy, if I remember that more regularly, I'd be in a lot better place spiritually. You can do more than pray after you pray. But you cannot do more than pray until you pray. You see it in these verses. It even says later on in, in, in our verse seven text, it says God beat the Philistines. And it says the people beat the Philistines. It says both of them happened. They had to go do it. 
They had to go out and chase them and so forth. But they did it this time the right way, you might say. They did it through prayer. They asked Samuel to pray for them. And Samuel called them together to pray. They were directed towards the Lord. And we see their posture in it even. We don't have time to talk about it. But verse 6, it says they fasted when they prayed. Fasting is just a way uh, that we can voluntarily put ourselves in a posture of more dependence, of more humility. It it goes on there and says that they uh, not only fasted, but they confessed. They acknowledged before the Lord we have sinned. That's why we do that each week in our worship service. It's pleasing to God to be honest and open with him. He already knows the stuff in our hearts. We're just being honest and open with him. And then look at this. Look at this. What is all of this prayer about? It's about this fight against the Philistines. That's what triggers it. Say, hey, we need to pray. Looking on down at verses 8 and 9. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bible. That's all the way towards the end of the Bible before Hebrews. But after Romans and first and second Corinthians, right there between Galatians and Philippians. And Ephesians chapter six. Is really helpful for us with this idea of prayer. Okay, this starting in verse 10 of Ephesians six or verses, maybe some of us learned uh, growing up or in our vacation Bible school, this idea of the armor of the Lord. Okay, so that's going to be familiar to us. But I want you to focus on how this fight is carried out. Okay, so it talks about the armor that needs to be put on and the ability to stand with that armor. But look at at where the fight is carried out and how the fight is carried out. Says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I, I need my dancing shoes. I can't dance. I need some strength. Where do I get it from? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's an enemy out there. The Philistines are the enemies in 1 Samuel. We've actually got a more comprehensive and significant enemy to our spiritual growth and progress. The the devil, it says there. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. People, if if we think this Christian walk is going to be easy... We, we are deluded. You know, you think about how intimidating it was for those Israelites to have to pick up physical weapons and go fight a physical battle. This is saying that you and I are actually engaged in a much more difficult conflict. They're not a physical one, but these spiritual forces are stronger than any individual person. Therefore, what do we do? Take up the armor of God and then it lists out here the breastplate of uh, righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit. Keep on reading on down with me. The helmet of salvation. And then verse 18 says praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Three times says the same thing. Praying at all times in the spirit With all prayer and supplication. So how do we dance this gospel waltz in a world where we have a lot of things trying to knock us off our feet, so to speak, cause us to stumble on the dance floor? We put on the dancing shoes of prayer. And that's why as a as a church, we're praying during our worship service. That's why we talk often about trying to carve out time each day. I don't do the greatest job of it. Um, I'm sure it's a struggle for all of us, but but it is the, the source for power and life for us 
to, to bow our heads and to pray. And I know the, the elders, the shepherds of our church would love to help you. If, if you'd like to begin growing in prayer life, we'd love to be able to help you with that and learn what it means to pray. Uh, this is the, this is the, the, the shoes, the, the feet, the power to, uh, to dance the gospel waltz. Last thing we see back now in 1 Samuel is an interesting one. And it really plays out over verses 8 and 9 that we just read, starting, I guess, in verse 9. It says, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord and cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered. And then in verse 12 and 13, it says, And Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now, the Lord has helped us. You see the picture here? What Samuel's doing? He's uh, not only recognizing that prayer's got to be there, that, that that's got to undergird and support this gospel waltz of repentance, believe, and, and fighting, seeking the Lord, but that underlying all of that has to be one who takes the punishment, the penalty for our sins. That's ultimately what all of this is centered on. And do you see this picture here? Samuel is doing what we'll ultimately see Christ do. Uh, He's a picture looking forward to Christ. Only the Lord Jesus Christ isn't going to offer up some nearby animal. He offers up himself. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 that he always lives to intercede for you and for me. The people are rejoicing because Samuel's interceding and they they want to remember this moment to kind of symbolize it. And so they set up this stone. Isn't it interesting? Ebenezer, we probably unless we're a serious, you know, Bible student person, we probably only know from Ebenezer Scrooge. Interesting that uh, what is it? Charles Dickens chose to name him. His first name was the Lord is my help. The stone of help. God must help me. And, of course, Ebenezer was all about he's going to manage his life. He's going to manage his money. He's going to control things by his own power. It's an ironic turn of phrase for that story in our verses today, though. It reminds us that the people of God knew they needed to remember those moments when they were dancing that gospel waltz. And they were delighting in it and God was watching over them and they were able to dance that dance. Okay, most of us guys here probably don't have a a single picture from uh, our high school dances, our proms or whatever. Maybe a few of us have one or two. Uh, The ladies probably have some scrapbooks somewhere if they dug deep to get them that, that have pictures and photographs to remember that special moment, that special Dance, And what I think it reminds us of is just that we ought to to uh, think about and meditate at those times when we're struggling to dance the dance and we're even praying and we're asking God to give us the, uh, the focus to repent, believe and fight that that when we're struggling with that, one of the things we can do is remember we can look back and we can say, you know, I remember when I at least walked some of these steps, I danced this move a little bit and I remember God being with me. In it. There's a show on uh, TV called Dancing with the Stars. I've never watched it, but I've seen the commercials and the previews or whatever for the show. 
And it's fascinating when you think about that in light of our passage and this idea of the gospel waltz that we can can dance a dance every day. I guess the, the show is about, you know, folks that get to dance and partner up and they're dancing with a star, with somebody who's famous, somebody who's significant. And they can learn a dance and dance this beautiful dance. Well, folks, you and I get an opportunity every day, all throughout the day, to dance this waltz with the living God, with the the groom as we're the bride, in this marvelous uh, marriage relationship of God's love and God's grace. It's a privilege for us. And as we mentioned earlier, because God delivers those who dance the gospel waltz, we should put on our praying shoes. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess that our uh, default mode is uh, not to dance this gospel waltz with you. And we confess, Lord, that We are shallow in our repentance. We don't really get into how deep the stuff is in our life that has directed us away from you and the idols we've made. And we're uh, frequently uh, weak in our faith and our trusting of you. And uh, Lord, as a result of that, we uh, are often very hesitant or, or just very distracted from actually seeking after you and running hard after you in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, even as we pray now and have seen in these verses how crucial uh, calling out to you through prayer is for our spiritual life, that you would grow us in our dependence upon you through prayer. And through prayer, we'd be strengthened to dance uh, this dance with you each day. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.